Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Professor Crystal Brent Zulk, who is, who has for more than 20 years reported on social issues such as health, education, culture, politics, race, gender, and the environment. She has been a contributor to the Washington Post, The New York Times, The Sunday Magazine, Five Essence, and many others. She's also a professor at Hofstra University in New York. Today, we will be discussing her book, The Girl in the Yellow Poncho. Professor Zook, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, it's um, the feedback has been interesting. I've been told that it's uh, a lot of tears. Uh, people are reading it in one night with a lot of tears. I'm surprised by how many people have told me that. Um, it's a story that on the surface, it's really about growing up biracial and looking for my missing white father and finding peace with myself and my own identity. Um, but there really are a lot of layers. So it's about a lot of things. Um, I like to say, you know, it's for anyone who doesn't quite fit in racially or culturally. Um, It's for anyone who's had a missing parent or even a distant parent um, and has yet to heal that relationship with them. It's, uh, It's a story of someone who was, you know, sort of lambasted in the public eye and went through feeling ashamed and, you know, almost on the verge of giving up on um, on my dreams, um, if anyone's had that experience. Um, it has to do with uh, sexual assault, wrestling with the demons of sexual assault, especially in an era, you know, long before Me Too, um, which is when I was coming up. Um, and it's really for anyone who's sort of the optimistic girls, girl women out there who are deter- determined to heal um, no matter what the odds may be, and determined to forgive and to, you know, uh, offer second chances um, to those that we love. And yeah, it's it's a lot of things. It is. And I agree. I was one of those people who was up in the middle of the night reading the book. And I could, and I read it twice, as I mentioned, I couldn't put it down and it definitely connects with readers on so many levels. You mentioned in the book um, Alice Walker's and such of our mother's gardens greatly impacted you. How so? Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I would start by saying that, you know, research shows that multiracial people go through changing, a changing sense of identity throughout a lifetime. 
Um, it's a little bit different because a large percentage of people change the way that they identify at different points and even in different con social contexts. There's a lot of sh shape shifting going on. Um, so I went from growing up in Hollywood, a very multi-racial, um, multi-ethnic international environment at Hollywood High School to being in the all-white environment of UC Santa Barbara, um, University of California, Santa Barbara, which in the 80s had about, I'd say, 1% Black population, if that. Um, it was very small. And so, you know, like a lot of yellow college students, I think college is like ground zero for deciding who we want to be. And it sort of forces us in many cases to take sides and to just kind of clarify where we fit in. And that so ch college can be a really challenging time um, for young people wrestling with identity. And um, so at the time I was really deeply influenced by a professor who exposed me to the writings of African-American women. Um, I just became really deeply engrossed. I was an English major. so. Deeply engrossed with June Jordan, Tony K. Bambara, Alice Walker, Toni Morrison, you know, um, Audre Lorde. I, I just sort of inhaled these works, um, Maya Angelou, who I had already read in high school. And I was sitting there one day and came across Alice Walker's um, essay in, in Search of Our Mother's Gardens, where she talked about the privilege of light-skinned women and how that this this the sense of colorism within the black community um the damage that colorism does can be can be you know so severe that light-skinned and dark-skinned black women don't recognize each other and she used a phrase, you know light-skinned black woman which for the first time in my life yeah, believe it or not i had never really thought about that phrase i had been you know growing up my grandma said we were mixed um if anybody asked but um i had never thought of myself as a light-skinned black woman and what kind of context that put me in in the eyes of brown skin african-american people looking at me i always say that there's the sense when people look at me like yeah i know what she is but does she know who she is <laughs> right i always feel like that's kind of the vibe like you know, because there's a sense like, I don't want to recognize her if she doesn't recognize herself, her own African-Americanness or ancestry, right? So it just kind of changed. It really changed everything for me that um, I began to see myself in a different context uh, as someone who could no longer walk around being oblivious to the impact that I had, um, especially when, you know, in my college, there was the Black Student Union, and that's it. There were no multiracial groups. There were at, at that time. There was nothing like that yet. So I was pretty early, being born in the '60s. Um, uh, with in, when you think about this wave that we've seen in the last 10, 20 years, this huge explosion of the multiracial population. You know, I was I was early, so you didn't have critical math. So that that's. Alice Walker had a big impact on me in college. And after college, you spent some time working at The Voice. Um, what was that like? 
Yeah, I don't know if people know the Village Voice anymore because it no longer exists, but um, I became a journalist and I wrote initially for the Village Voice, which was a weekly, a very, at that time, kind of um, prestigious in terms of culture and writing about film and TV and um, feminism and race and all kinds of things. It was, it was really where I wanted to be based in New York. And I also wrote for the LA Weekly, which was like the LA counterpart of the Village Voice. Um, and that's where I got my start as a journalist. And I really um, was interested in film and television to begin because it seemed like I was working out my own questions about identity through a lot of the, um, especially TV productions that I saw. Uh, I ended up writing my first book, Color by Fox, um, is about black produced shows in the 1990s and the early 90s. Um, and a lot of those shows, you know, you had Living Single, Rock, um, South Central, Sinbad Show, New York Undercover, Martin. Um, a lot of those shows, because they were black people producing them behind the camera in much greater numbers than ever before. These questions of, you know, who is really Black? What does Black authenticity mean? Um, what does it mean when you add, you know, economics and wealth into the picture? Does someone become less Black? And that question was played out a lot on shows like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which was largely Black produced as well. You know, so uh, as a journalist, I did a lot of writing about film and television. It's just a way to kind of answer my own questions. And then moved into uh, magazines and more social justice issues. I still write about film and TV, but um, I also wanted to do long form pieces uh, about, you know, everything from health, education, uh, you know, all the different crises facing the community, um, the prison complex. I, I wrote for Essence Magazine for many years up on these topics um, and just sort of expanded my reporting in that way. And in 1996, excuse me, you traveled to Australia. What prompted you to go there? Yeah, so that's an interesting story. I did a piece for the New York Times Sunday Magazine. Um, I was asked to write about Black feminist movement, and it became so controversial. Um, a lot of people supported it and liked what I was doing, and a lot of you know. Then there was a lot of criticism as well, um, mostly from the idea that we shouldn't air our dirty laundry. You shouldn't be talking about things like. Um, sexism in public in this way and you know with among black people and so it was really it was a painful experience and a learning experience um, I think I was in my 30s at the time and I for a time I just sort of I hid I, I felt like I wanted to hide away um, I got an offer to teach in Australia to teach cultural studies and by that time I had my PhD and I had been teaching African-American studies at, at UCLA and different places. And so, yeah, I accepted the offer and it was an amazing, it was really it just, you can't underestimate the power of travel 
to change your worldview and sort of refocus, right? I feel like a lot of the book is about the power of getting outside yourself. There are different points in the book when I go different places and um, see the world anew from a whole different perspective, right? And I got involved with a community of friends who were indigenous Australians and, you know, they call themselves black fellas down there. And um, I had a, a relationship with a man who was biracial like me, but indigenous and, and learned a lot from his family. And it was almost like blackness turned upside down. That's the way I think of it, because from the other side of the world, the issues around being a black person were similar, but also very, very different. And it was refreshing, I think, to be forced to come out of myself and have to learn about another culture, really, right? And so, yeah, I spent a couple of years uh, going back and forth there and then came back to being a journalist in the U.S., and you wrote Black Women's Lives, Stories of Power and Pain. Um, how and why did you write that book? So this book came out of, um, you know, I was writing for Essence magazine, and there were just so many stories I wanted to tell women all around the country from all different walks of life. And there wasn't enough space in the magazine to tell all of these stories. There are, I think, there were nine, originally nine or 10 women in the book, um, and only two of those were published in essence. The rest were original um, pieces that I, maybe two or three were published, but um, that I went out and found. So there's, you know, an organic dairy farmer in Vermont. There's a filmmaker um, in Los Angeles who's actually blown up since then. She's pretty big now, Gina Prince-Bytewood. Um, who just did the woman king and but she was in the book way before this before that and um there's you know a ceo of a company in new york a hair care company in new york there's a, a a school principal in georgia who started actually started the first sugar-free school in america which is in a black school most people don't realize that but she was ahead of her time so that book just kind of came out of those stories. And I'm, I'm really happy to say that we're now getting ready to publish Black Women's Lives 20 years later. Um, it updates all of those stories. We, we you know, caught up with the women 20 years later. And you get to really see how their lives evolved and their challenges and their triumphs. And I've never been able to um, have the privilege of doing reporting like that where you come back 20 years later and talk to people again. So it was, it was really fulfilling and I hope that book will come out sometime in the next year or so. Congratulations on that. And I must pick it up because I would like to see 20 years later, how things have changed or stayed the same as well. Um, so that is awesome that that is coming out. Now you mentioned the role of travel and earlier and you also went to the island of Benini. How life-changing was that experience for you? Yeah, that's just another example of 
you know, I guess there was a, there's a point in the book that I might call my rock bottom. You know, I think we all, when you're going through the process of recovery and not just from substance abuse, um, I know that term gets used, but I don't mean it in terms of substance abuse in my own case. It's really in terms of just, I can't take any more. I can't live like this anymore. And so my own personal rock bottom had me listening to my inner voice a lot more closely. And my inner voice was like, you need to go spend some time with your spirit. Um, that's really what it told me. You need to spend some time with your spirit. So I decided that I wanted to swim with wild dolphins. I don't, I'm not very interested in supporting dolphins in captivity, but I did want to try to swim with wild dolphins, uh, dolphins in the wild. And so, yeah, I took a trip by myself on a boat, small boat with a small group of people. And, um, you know, it was very non-invasive. They say the dolphins may or may not come to you. There's no guarantee. And, you know, you don't touch them or anything like that. So I, I loved the idea of it. And, you know, we always say there are no accidents and you're wherever you are. There's a reason for that. Um, it was interesting because the people that I met, the women who happened to be on that boat, um, had really unique stories and experiences that kind of overlapped with with mine. So the things that they were telling me were things that I absolutely needed to hear at that very moment. And it felt like, you know, this whole thing had been planned by a higher power, you know, um, and I just kind of went with it. So yeah, it was very healing. And again, you see the world through different eyes when you travel and you come back. I feel like I always come back um, it refreshed, like in my soul, right? Um, so that's what Bimini and that's what the dolphins did for me. I have to give them credit too. <laughs> I can imagine. As I was reading your book, one of the many things that stood out to me was you stating that, quote, not everything in life was meant to be a battle, but did it follow that the answer to every conflict was surrender? And what was one to do when surrender felt like death by drowning? Can you share a bit about what that means? Yeah, you know, that was from from Bimini when you when you go under with the air, I had no experience doing that. And it, it felt like you really have to surrender. You have to just take that leap of faith to go under and trust that you can breathe, right? And so it was really scary the first day. And I was like, wait a minute, I haven't really had training for this. I don't know if I should be doing this. Um, but the second day was amazing. And just, you know, I remember the captain of the boat saying, just remember you did it in the womb like you breathe water in the womb and just kind of surrender to it. And so, yeah, I used it as a, as an analogy for, for life that sometimes you really just have to let yourself sink down and it looks so dark down there, right? At the, at the bottom of the ocean, it looks so like, what am I sinking down into? But you have to trust that where you're going is going to be, have meaning. Right. And after you came back, your life changed again. You met 
Alfonso, what happened? Yeah, so my my life partner, we've been together about 17 years now. Um, I like to say that I met him when I was ready to meet him, that none of us can really have a healthy relationship until we do the work of healing, right? On our own, I believe. Um, it's really hard to walk into a relationship when you have just so many unfinished um, traumas and questions and struggles. And we're, nobody's perfect. And of course, we're all, you know, a work in progress. But I could feel that I was different when I met him, when I got on that airplane. We met on a plane and sat down next to him. I was a different person than I had been, you know, 10 years earlier. I've been doing the work of healing. And that's why I think he came into my life at that moment. This is interesting. We, um, He's from Spain, from Madrid, and I actually studied in Madrid when I was 20 at the university there. And so, and we lived in the same neighborhood and I probably came across him at some point, you know, 20 years earlier or people in his family probably passed them on the street. Um, but I, yeah, I met him when I was supposed to meet him. Right. Everything happens for a reason. You also became a mom during this time. How did that transform your life? Yeah. My daughter, Olivia, is, um, she's almost seven. And I started writing this book when she was about one or less than one. And I started thinking about multiracial identity and the fact that she's multiracial and um, her life and her context is going to be so different from mine because, of course, now you have this whole multiracial movement of young people who are saying, you know, they want to be free to to define themselves and to choose their own, right, um, their own their own authentic identities. I didn't have that growing up. It, we still lived under the one drop rule. Basically, you're either white or black, and if you have one drop, you're probably considered black. Um, especially for somebody like me who was raised by two black women and I, you know, I didn't have a white parent in the home. And so I, the book I originally, I was just thinking about this generation and how it's changed. Uh, ever since 2000, we've had a category on the census. A lot of people fought for that. It was very controversial, um, at the time with, with good reason, um, because you're sort of breaking up uh, those who identify as Black or Latino into, you know, other or, you know, more than one. And so, you know, I won't get into that topic, but I can see, I can understand um, both sides. And it, you know, it, it was controversial at the time. Um, but, you know, now we've had 20 years of that. We've had 20 years of school forums and medical forums that kind of expect except the idea that people can check off more than one box. And I think that we've seen a huge shift in the culture because of that. Um, and just because of sheer numbers, you know, there's been a 278% increase in um, the multiracial population in the last 10 years. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I started thinking about 
how she would identify my daughter and how, you know, um, <laughs> you know, she's a mix of African-American, white, and Southeast Asian. And you have terms like Black Apino, right now, Blasian for Black and Asian. Um, that have been around for at least, I guess, 10 years now. So it's it's completely normalized something that was not at all, you know, normal or it was it was very unusual um, when I was growing up. Right. That's true. It's now there are so many different categories, as you mentioned, are as you are filling out forms and documents now, you can check multiple boxes. Um, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, now, as we've been talking, what would you want readers to take away from the book? Yeah, I think above all else, it's a story of healing. And I know that sounds like, you know, whatever, but it, we all have places in our lives that I think need healing and forgiveness. And, um, what I found was once you start that process, it's like a, it's like a domino effect. It's like a chain reaction because uh, I was looking to heal the relationship with my father. And in doing that, you know, I also inadvertently was able to help my mother and father heal their past. And more importantly, to help my mother heal, you know, he left when she was pregnant with me, she was 21. And there's a young woman that still, I think, was inside of her that was still deeply hurt and traumatized um, by that. And so they've been able to heal. I'm not going to give away the ending, but there is kind of a surprise twist <laughs> um, in, in their relationship. And then by her healing... The, the other surprise was that she and I were able to heal um, our own, you know, sort of a painful um, memories and past. And I think for a long time I thought, well, she's the one who was there. She was the one who raised me. And so, you know, what is there to heal? It's really about finding my father who left. But that's not true. She, like I said, she would she was also traumatized in a lot of ways. And um, I think as the book shows, there's there was a lot of growth that happened for her as a as a mother. And now, especially as a grandmother, um, which, you know, that's probably the biggest surprise of all and the happiest surprise, you know, just watching my mother be a grandmother. <laughs> yes, that is definitely a joy um, to have that opportunity. I'm sorry. So I would just, yeah, I would just say that the main takeaway, I think, is really about forgiveness and second chances, because at every turn, I could have easily said, well, my father was in, in the wrong you know, he made all these mistakes and I could have just left it at that. But this is where the yellow poncho comes in. Yellow for me symbolizes optimism and joy. And I was always kind of insisting on being that happy, optimistic girl who kept trying even up until today and who kept, who kept dreaming about 
a happy ending. Um, and so I think the main takeaway is that it's, that it's possible. We all can create our own happy ending, whatever that looks like for each person. You know, it doesn't have to be the fairy tale, but a happy, healthy, whole kind of ending, um, which was what I found amazingly at the end of this journey. Doctors, look, I want to say thank you for joining me today. Readers, please, I urge you, go out and pick up a copy of The Girl in the Yellow Poncho, and I assure you, you will not put it down until you are finished with it. And as Professor Zook said, it is about optimism. It is about looking at your life introspectively and forgiveness. So please, readers, I urge you, go out and pick up a copy. And you will walk away from this book in some ways change yourself. So thank you again, Professor Zook, for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I just want to let people know that I'm on book tour. Um, I've done appearances in L.A., which is where I'm from. And I, I will be back in L.A. Um, uh, here in Miami, which is where I'm based. I've done appearances. I have upcoming ones in New York, in New York City and Long Island, and in Seattle. And they want to follow me on Instagram. It's KB, as in boy, Zook, KB Zook. Um, and on other social media, I'm out there. And you can also go to thegirlinthyellowpancho.com. All of the um, speaking dates are there. And, you know, I know people, not a lot of people are going out to bookstores these days, but it's a really big deal to support an author and, and show up. So if you're in like the Seattle area or the New York area, um, you know, please come out and just, you know, it's, it's wonderful to shake people's hand in person and sign a book and, you know, see the connection in, in your, in people's eyes. We had a great event last weekend in Miami, um, at books and books and it's just it's really gratifying for for me as an author so i hope that um, people will check it out please readers as professor zook says there's nothing like going to a bookstore and meeting an author i can attest to that so please go out and as she says there is the website for the girl in the yellow poncho so you can see her dates when she's on tour and maybe you can go out and connect with her in person thank you again for joining me Thank you so much for having me.